Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. On this episode, we'll first be talking about the Antifa riots that broke out in Portland this past weekend, Saturday, June 29. A handful of people who were at the protest were severely injured, including photojournalist Andy No, who was peacefully filming the protest when he was targeted. On this segment, we break down the basics of Antifa, who they are and what their objective is. After that, Act in Line producer John Caritas is joined by Craig Bruce Smith, a professor of history at William Woods University, to talk about the increasing dismissal of America's founders. The founders were deeply flawed, so what should we do with their memory, let alone their founding ideals? Keep in mind that all the articles and reading materials that are mentioned in this episode are all linked in the show notes, posted every Wednesday when our episodes release at blog.actin.org. On a last note, if you like this podcast, I would love to hear any feedback you have. I always appreciate hearing what you like about our show or what you want to hear more of, and I even take suggestions for guests or topics and incorporate that into the podcast. If you have feedback, you can reach me at actinline at actin.org. Today, I'm joined by Reverend Ben Johnson, a senior editor here at Acton and the editor of our popular Religion and Liberty magazine. And he's here to comment on the recent riots that broke out in Portland this past weekend. Father Ben, thank you for joining me. Always a pleasure. Now, a piece from the Wall Street Journal covering the violent riots that broke out this past weekend, it reported that Quote, the far right group Proud Boys and other men's rights activists planned a rally in downtown Portland. Left wing groups associated with the extremist Antifa movement, such as Pop Mob and Rose City Antifa, they organized a counter protest. End quote. Who are these groups exactly? What is Antifa? Antifa is a disparate movement. It doesn't have a central organization or one particular national headquarters that you could hold all of the members accountable to. Uh, it's it's a decentralized, leaderless movement that uh, grew out of antecedents that go back into the 1960s at least, and uh, in some cases overseas. Uh, probably the closest uh, domestic for, forerunner to this group is a group called Black Bloc, uh, they were an anarchist group that was active in 1999 at the World Trade Organization riots in Seattle and uh, did a great deal of property damage. They were named because they would stand uh, quite often uh, in, in a block together and they always wore black, including a black mask. And anyone who's seen Antifa realizes that's the, that's the model that they've taken after. So when they gather to protest, uh, what, are, what are they even protesting? Well, Antifa is short for anti-fascist, and in their mind, they are protesting fascism. However, their definition of fascism is, fascism is somewhat uh, overly broad, we could say. Uh, so, for example, they protested Ben Shapiro speaking at the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, ben Shapiro is certainly nobody's idea of a fascist. Uh, they have assaulted elderly Trump supporters uh, who, who have no known extremism connections, whatever. Uh, they believe that it's immoral to give a platform for fascism uh, in, as they define it. And so anyone who allows anyone to speak uh, and, and to express ideas that they, dis, they deem to be fascistic is a collaborator with fascism. Uh, so in their view, it's speech itself that has to be ended. Uh, so if someone expresses a point of view that they believe is potentially dangerous or harmful or hurtful to someone, uh, according to left-wing orthodoxy, then that individual has to be stopped. 
And uh, ironically, in, in, as they're doing this, they're using the actual tactics of the fascists themselves. You say fascism as they define it. So how do they define it? It's a very broad definition. Seemingly, uh, so for example, uh, President Trump is, is always considered to be a fascist, so are his supporters. Uh, it, essentially, it is uh, anything that uh, deviates from the idea of identity politics, uh, the, the sort of uh, I, academic orthodoxy that's been handed down uh, in institutions of higher learning for several decades now, that the United States is uniquely sinful and evil because of its founding, uh, that uh, the belief in freedom of speech for everyone, including ideas that you disagree with, anyone who would express the idea that people should express ideas and that the the antidote to bad speech is good speech would be considered a collaborator with fascism uh, in this case. So so fascism is, is uh, essentially anything that moves away from uh, from either anarchy or communism in uh, in many of these groups are extreme left wing. Some of them are associated with uh, revolutionary communist party and, and splinter groups of that sort. Some of them are anarchists uh, and some of them even have ties to uh, overseas anarchist groups and have gone overseas for training in places like Greece. Uh, matter of fact, according to the Department of Homeland Security, at least two members of Antifa trained with a Turkish group that fought alongside ISIS. Now, that's not typical. Uh, that's extreme. But uh, that's not to say that there are not uh, overseas connections to groups that are genuinely fascistic. I've heard sometimes Antifa being lumped in with the alt-right. And depending on where you get your news from, they're labeled far left or far right. You just refer to Antifa as being left wing. How do you compare them? What are what are the similarities here? Well, the alt-right, uh, which I, I gave a talk about at uh, Acton University this past week, uh, is basically a biological determinist movement. Uh, they believe that race is all-determining. And uh, and so they were, for example, were the group that held the Unite the Right uh, rally in Charlottesville last year. And it was Antifa activists who turned out to oppose them, uh, as they have at uh, virtually any sort of alt-right uh, event. So anytime you see the alt-right the groups that are opposing them almost always include Antifa from all over the country, sometimes all over the world. They are very often associated with one another. Uh, quite quite candidly, these are two groups that deserve one another. Uh, the alt-right has uh, a disdain for democracy, a disdain for equality, and uh, they believe in selective application of the law. So too does Antifa. And uh, when we uh, get to speaking about uh, the most recent event, I think we'll see some of the similarities that uh, unite these two groups, at least in their tactics, if not their differing ideologies. I think what really sparked outrage against these riots was the attack of the journalist Andy No. On Saturday, June 29, he ended up in the hospital with a brain hemorrhage and had apparently milkshakes thrown at him that were really laced with concrete mix. Apparently, it's characteristic of these groups to throw milkshakes at anyone that they deem uh, is against their their mission, their objective. Um, and I think Andy No, he was just peacefully uh, covering the protests, just filming them. Two other men were also somehow caught up in the riots. They were both beaten over the head with crowbars. Some really bloody pictures were circulating on Twitter. Why did they go after No? Because I'm not too familiar with Andy No's work enough, but why would they react like this toward him? I've only become familiar with Andy No's work since he's become prominent because of this. But I know that Andy No is a journalist in Portland. He has been critical of uh, the Antifa movement, these two have a history that go back together. Because he's in Portland, he's been covering uh, Antifa, where uh, Portland, of course, is uh, one of their strongholds, a very left-wing city, and they, they have a, a 
a, an area which they can uh, recruit many uh, people who are like-minded from uh, from this region. Antifa is is very active there, and so he's been exposing them in many cases. For example, there was an incident last October where uh, Antifa was uh, protesting some police action. They ended up shutting down an intersection without a permit, and uh, they were directing traffic, stopping traffic. In one case, they jumped on the hood of a car as it was driving by uh, because it didn't stop for this uh, for this uh, intersection being blocked. And the person who reported that story made it go national was a gentleman by the name of Andy No. So they, they have a history uh, going back and forth. In one of his articles, he doxed uh, someone. That is to say, he exposed the personal information of one of the Antifa uh, protesters. And so there's been a great deal of animosity between the two of them. He is always at their events. And so uh, at this event in Portland uh, over the weekend, uh, Noah was walking around with a GoPro filming what they were doing. Uh, there were two uh, events, I believe it was the Proud Boys uh, that you mentioned, and and then Antifa, which I think outnumbered the Proud Boys uh, far and away. And uh, uh, Noah ended up walking into uh, the Antifa event, covering them, and suddenly out of nowhere, they began beating him, hitting him, kicking him, and milkshaking him. And and by the way, milkshaking is actually something that goes uh, to um, to activists over in the UK. Uh, that's something that's been increasing over there. Nigel Farage, the uh, current head of the Brexit Party, someone who was uh, formerly the founder of UKIP and uh, the leader of the Brexit movement, was one of the people who received a milkshake. In his case, uh, the, the milkshake that they threw was nothing more than a milkshake. In this case, it was a toxic element uh, that uh, allegedly, according to Portland police, included uh, some uh, a chemical agent of, of uh, quick-acting concrete. Uh, and and he, as you mentioned, had a brain hemorrhage as a result of doing nothing more than reporting this. Now, Andy No is uh, a homosexual of Vietnamese descent. He's five feet, six inches tall, and it would be fair to say he's not physically imposing. Uh, there were multiple people who ganged up on him, all of them wearing black uh, black clothes, all black, black hood, covering their faces uh, with, with black hoods on them, beating him in a circle. Uh, if instead of being uh, black-robed, if they had been wearing all white with a white robe and a white hood, I think we would begin to see the similarities between these two groups. And the police, it seems, were pretty, I mean, they took a back seat in the protests. I'm going to quote Andy No here. He spoke with Tucker Carlson on Fox yesterday, July 1. He says, quote, I don't know how many people were involved. It seemed like five, 10, 15, or 20. I put my arms up to try to shield my face as well as to signal to them that I was surrendering and that I was not there to fight, but it really signaled to them to be more aggressive. So then they started dumping what I believed were milkshakes and eggs, throwing it at my face, which blinded me so I couldn't see. He goes on to say that he was kicked and punched some more. He says, I could still see the Multnomah County Justice Center in front of me, but no police ever arrived. I eventually stumbled away, bleeding across the park, and I lost my balance. So I sat down on the ground in front of the courthouse, and from there, a medic SWAT team informed me that in order to get into an ambulance to be taken to a hospital, I would have to walk to the police precinct. In other words, walk back in the direction of the demonstrators who just attacked me. So from this, it sounds as if there was at least minimal police presence. And Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, he's given some excuses about this, but he hasn't really addressed it. Uh, that's that's what's been reported, is that uh, if there were police, they simply stood by. 
which would be consistent with what Noe had reported in that previous incident of that uh, intersection being closed down. He said that there were police who were watching Antifa activists stopping uh, traffic and blocking an intersection, and they did nothing. And Mayor Wheeler at that time defended the police. Uh, he said that they had done the right thing in not intervening because that would have made the incident even worse. Uh, Antifa are known to attack police, uh, both here and around the world. So. Uh, it would be consistent with uh, the M.O. of the Portland police that they simply stepped out of the way and allowed things to, to go as they would. And that's that's also occurred in other instances, including, according to uh, some recent documents, may have also happened at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville with tragic consequence. So are we seeing more riots like this breaking out in Portland? Portland is certainly the stronghold of Antifa, no question about it. But anywhere that, uh, that the... Uh, the alt-right or any of the groups associated with the alt-right uh, are active. Antifa is there. And as the uh, campaign begins to heat up in this presidential year, uh, we're just now entering the Democratic primary season. But uh, when Donald Trump begins to uh, uh, to have his uh, campaign rallies, I believe you'll see a great deal uh, of, uh, of violence opposed to some of the people in uh, in in his uh, supporting, uh, in, uh, some of the people supporting him, as as happened in Las Vegas during 2016 and other incidents in 2016. Unfortunately, uh, Antifa is not a new group, and these tactics are not new. By the by, the spring of 2016, the Department of Homeland Security had actually uh, produced several internal memos where they talked about what Antifa was doing as, and this is a quote, domestic terrorist violence. So they're seeing this as a, as a group that's using violence in order to accomplish uh, domestic uh, political uh, objectives, which is to say to try and silence those who oppose them because they believe that uh, the speech of the other side is uniquely harmful and dangerous. So what's giving rise to these groups and how should we respond? I'd say the core of it is really this polarized rhetoric that we have had in uh, in our political discourse. It's becoming more and more polarized as time goes by. It dehumanizes those who disagree. Uh, Nation Magazine, for example, ran a, an article. Nation Magazine, the flagship uh, publication of the left, uh, ran an article which said uh, in part in the quotation, Trumpism is not well combated or contained by stam standard liberal appeals to reason. So that is to say that somehow uh, people who who uh, support the president are uniquely impervious to uh, to this. They're essentially ineducable, uh, and uh, and are unable to be dealt with in a rational way. They can only respond to force, and therefore, uh, this absolves the left from having to make an intellectual case. They simply have to uh, to move forward by by the use of force. Uh, Mother Jones also ran an article about uh, punching Nazis quite some time ago, uh, which, which talked about the use of, quote, righteous violence. So when people begin to dehumanize others, when they say that uh, their opponents are uniquely impervious to reason and that violence is an acceptable means, then all we're arguing about are the parameters of that use. How much, what, uh, in what cases would it be justified and to what extent? And somewhere along that continuum, you end up uh, somewhere on the continuum, you either have milkshakes being thrown at people or people being hit with signs. And at the far end of the continuum, you have political assassinations. And it's it's simply a matter of how far into unreason, uh, how far into denying the decent human dignity of every human being, uh, particularly those with whom we disagree, we wish to let our culture sink. I know that you've also published a post to Acton's blog before in which you said that this is at the core, also a spiritual issue. What do you mean by that? I think at the core, 
uh, it, it truly is a spiritual issue because it's about whether or not we recognize the God-given dignity that everyone who is created in the image of God has, uh, whether all people have uh, that image, that imago Dei, that we are created in the image of God, we have unique reasoning abilities, and therefore we can meet on the grounds of dialogue. And uh, I wouldn't work at a think tank if I didn't think that it was important to discuss ideas. And the answer to bad ideas, such as those put out by the alt-right, with which I disagree, uh, are better ideas. The answer to bad speech is good speech. And that is the, the area where we have to, to meet people. That's the only way that the religion, I believe, in Christianity has, has uh, genuinely gone about its mandate to convert souls. Uh, there have been times where it has gone other ways, and the history of nations that uh, have had state churches have not gone well. So when, when, um, when state power has been used to try and compel people to think or believe a certain way, it always backfires. Instead, we have to recognize that all people are made in the image of God, allow them to say and express what they want, and eventually, Lord willing, find the grace to find that they are wrong and that all people truly do have this dignity. Father Ben, thank you so much for joining me today and for explaining some of the basics behind these often muddled topics. <laughs> thank you so much. The modern West is currently experiencing a radical breakdown of the sacredness of social order. We're living in an era characterized by increasing skepticism of Christianity, and especially of Christianity's teaching on gender and sexuality. Join us at the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan, to hear Bruce Ashford, professor of theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, on family, state, and religious liberty. Save your seat today at acton.org events. Welcome to Acton Line. I'm your host, John Caritas. Today we're welcoming to the podcast Craig Bruce Smith, an assistant professor of history at William Woods University and the author of a book, American Honor, The Creation of the Nation's Ideals During the Revolutionary Era. Welcome to Acton Line, Craig. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to it. So we're talking uh, today on July 1, and we're getting ready to celebrate uh, the nation's independence, patriotic bunting, parades, picnics, baseball, all of the things that uh, we do this for this holiday. And of course, we want to commemorate our founders, but <clears throat> that seems to be changing lately. And I want to refer us back to an article you wrote just about a year ago exactly, and the title of it is... You can't celebrate America's independence while vilifying the founders. And this article appeared in The Federalist. We'll put a link to the show notes. The intro says, The founders were deeply flawed, but democracy and liberty are not. Let's focus less on their failings and more on their ideals. The founders are for everyone, and we need them. So, yeah, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. And my first question to you was going to be, well, Craig, since you wrote this article a year ago, has anything changed? Have we become a little more balanced? And uh, you may have seen an article appeared a few days ago in the New York Times titled, San Francisco School Will Cover Controversial George Washington Murals. And uh, the story goes on to talk about how this mural, which was actually painted in the in the 30s, the school board is now trying to decide whether the murals will be covered with panels or painted over at a cost in the mid to upper six figures. So 
Craig, start us off here. What What's going on? And uh, is there going to be any end to this campaign? Uh, well, historians make bad profits, uh, but I can tell you over the past year, I haven't seen any change. Um, in fact, the, what you've just noted, uh, the, the actions in San Francisco are just one example of a continuation of uh, this sort of policy to um, dismiss or, um, I don't want to say abandon, but to certainly alter the perception of, of the founders. And this is not something new. It's not, you know, something specific to this moment. It's something that's been the process of going on for several decades now, uh, certainly in the scholarly community, but more recently in the, uh, you know, just for the general public and the idea of pointing out the inherent laws of members of the revolutionary generation and their core documents, how they have not lived up to a promise that would be expected from a 21st century audience. Um, so the title of that piece uh, was not mine. Uh, I had a, a one that was slightly less sensationalized. Uh, I think it was something like Why the Founders Matter. Uh, but that title certainly got the article a lot of traction, and there were lots of opinions on, on both sides of it. Um, so I'm happy to discuss that, that more. But um, I think we're just continuing along where we were last year, um, that the founders, whether it's George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, or, or anyone from that generation, um, is targeted for by, because of standards that did not necessarily exist in the same way uh, during the time. Right. So, and of course, the great sin is slavery. And talking about this issue, I want to be careful and say early on that this is not about somehow soft-peddling slavery or not acknowledging um, this, you know, great sin that existed back in the day of the founders. But as you say, there seems to be... um, the sentiment seems to be that if they were in any way involved or slaveholders or somehow complicit, then they are, on the face of it, guilty and therefore should be, in some quarters, erased from the history. So I think you're absolutely right. Slavery is the great sin of American history, and there's no way to dispute that. And the story of slavery connected to American history needs to be told, and it should be told. Um, The what you've pointed out, though, I think is also going on where uh, the fact that if a figure owned slaves or was sympathetic to slavery or did not outright speak against slavery, they have become a target for vilification. And for the modern audience, any connection with slavery rightfully should be uh, marked as, as immoral, but you have to understand it in the context of the 21st century. And the idea is, if you're looking at 18th century society into 19th century society, slavery is a system in which virtually everyone is complicit in some way, maybe some more direct than others. Um, But if you're looking at the American Revolutionary Era, this is where you have the sort of birth of the abolitionist movement, the anti-slavery movement. It's coming largely from these ideals of liberty that are being talked about in the revolution. Um, 
So I, I think it's important that uh, you can recognize that there are fundamental limitations on how freedom spread as a result of the founders, but they are certainly the ones that get this idea moving. Right, and then and the whole point of the abolitionists would argue that let's live up to our d- ideals, our constitution. Let's live up to the, the greatest truths that we um, have founded this country on. And so that really was the the document that they cited to advance their cause, was it not? Oh, exactly right. So when looking at the abolitionist movement, uh, the suffragist movement, it is very carefully looking to the language of the Declaration of Independence, look to the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the phrase, all men are created equal. Um, that is probably one of the most debated lines in, in American history, the idea being it can be interpreted in, in many ways, and many different groups interpret in those ways. Is this exclusively for white property, uh, land-holding men? Uh, is this the idea of man as mankind? Uh, is it all men, regardless of race? So the ideals of the Declaration have been used to advance a variety of causes that have led to an expansion of liberty. Certainly many were not actualized right away. Um, but I think when targeting sort of the founders, there's, there's often a dismissing of their ideas as somehow uh, these ideas are somehow flawed or, or marred by um, the personal actions of the people that created them. And, of course, this came to a head in the Civil War. Um, oh, of and, course. And, uh, you know, 600,000 Americans um, died in that conflict. Are there any parallels between what's happening with the founders and what we've seen in recent years with the campaign to pull down the statues of Confederate generals and the, the Confederate flag and that sort of thing? Now, this is a very different question now. These were politicians, military leaders who fought against the United States in a war. But is there some sort of – is there something of the same spirit going on with the founders now that maybe started with the Confederates? And this is something I, I've written a couple of articles on this, some op-eds. One was in the New York Daily News, and another, I believe, was in the uh, was Washington Examiner um, on controversies. One was at Hofstra University, and the other was at George Washington uh, University. And uh, one was about a step, statue of Thomas Jefferson, and the other was about uh, George Washington University's uh, team nickname, which was the Colonials. And both were pushed back against for, for reasons that you, that you pointed out. Now, uh, I said, I've said previously in print that there should be no comparison between Confederates and American revolutionaries, American patriots. They're, one fought against the nation, one built the nation. And I think to compare them is absolutely ridiculous. And I, and I think most of the historical community would, would, would agree. Um, at least they certainly did or viewed them as fundamentally different at the start of the Confederate you know, monuments uh, uh, removal movement. However, I do think there's a similar spirit going on in that um, where while Confederates by definition, committed treason in, in many respects, are fighting against the United States, fighting for the institution of slavery. Uh, the founding generation is being vilified for the ownership of slavery and not uh, leading to full abolitionism, not leading to full expansions of, of freedom. And the two are fundamentally different, but I think the 
targeting of the founders is very much a result of the movement that started with the Confederates. But I, but I think when the Confederate monument movement first started, and this was a really controversial statement, um, and again, I'm paraphrasing, I know President Trump said something, you know, today it's Robert E. Lee, tomorrow is it going to be George Washington and Thomas Jefferson? And everyone sort of laughed, well, that's not a comparison, that, that's not an issue. But it did happen that way. The attack on the Confederates, and, and, and many, injustly so, on Confederate monuments, opened the door for this. Yes. Now, you're a historian. Has this movement, this campaign to change the historical narrative, changed the way you teach history today? I note in your article, you said it's perfectly fine to use the term founders, for example, instead of founding fathers. Are there other different perspectives you might bring to it now in light of what's been going on? Oh, absolutely. And I think this is something that is true of historians and teachers in general, uh, especially in the more recent uh, history. I mean, uh, we could argue up to as late as the 1950s, some would argue even later, that you still have this this sort of um, marble man, glorified, deified founding father. Father of our country and cherry tree myths yeah. and all that, right? Exclusively white male elite. And I think that narrative has been very much shattered. I think that's so... When I know when I teach about the American founding and early America and the American Revolution, it's a story that involves, you know, elite white men, of course. It involves people of different classes, involves women, involves uh, people of various racial backgrounds, whether free or enslaved African Americans, involves Native Americans. And I think that's necessary to tell the story of, uh, of the birth of the United States. Um, so those aspects, absolutely, they should be there, and they need to be there. Um, but I've often found that a lot of the movement has been to replace the founders rather than add to them. Yeah, the, one part of this movement would too soon um, label them as villains and cast them out of the whole historical narrative. And, and that's a lot of what we, we've been seeing in what's going on in San Francisco and in other movements, literally striking their names or images um, from locations. It is pretty amazing. You know, it, it's, it, and it's, I guess it's an obvious parallel, but it, it's somewhat reminiscent of what you would get in a, in a, a Soviet or a Maoist system where you ac- actually have to submit these figures to an ideological test uh, for fitness according to the dominant ideology, and if they don't uh, meet up according to your standards, then you whitewash them out of history. Well, I, like I say, I'm not a political pundit. I'm a historian. So what I'm just observing is these are individuals that fundamentally had ideas and actions that shaped the United States, um, created the promise of what it is and what it still can become, and to remove that, I, I feel, is, is, is problematic. And it's not so much the, you know, the actual iconography or a name on the school, but when you start this, it, it sort of creates a slippery slope where if, you know, George Washington High, um, or there was uh, one example of uh, there was a prom in New Jersey that the, the invitation said, party like it's 1776, and that was pulled back for being insensitive. I think that really creates a slippery slope where then the ideals start to be challenged. So you 
You uh, see a lot of students. You're a historian. You're a teacher. Do students, can you gauge the level of understanding of American history for every incoming class? Are the, and I don't want to pick on the kids because, of course, they're there to learn. But, A, um, can you get a beat on what they do know when they come in? And, B, can you gauge their receptiveness to what you're trying to teach? Sure. I mean, I've taught a a lot of schools over the years, so everything varies based on on the school. But overall, students are are, are students. You have some that come in with a vast array of background knowledge and understanding. You have some um, that tell me they hate history and have to take the class. Uh, And you have others that, you know, have have a basic general understanding. So it's it's all over. Um, I think a lot of what I try to do is to break down the idea that history just happens, you know, uh, try to present it as result of choices. Um, and, you know, like I said earlier, giving this sort of nuanced, well-rounded uh, illustration of how the nation was founded. Um, but at the same time, I, I try to present these sort of quote-unquote founders as flawed personally, but with ideals that have that have continued to shape the United States and, and have been transported uh, internationally. And if you look at a lot of what's been written on the, the American Revolution recently, it, it's oftentimes moving away from the importance of the ideals, the importance of the beliefs, uh, the importance of these central founding figures, and dismissing them as motivated by personal interest, economic opportunity, uh, just the sort of this mad dash for for power. Uh, And that's a lot of what I try to um, offer an alternative to. I present both sides in class, and I think it's up to the student to to make their own interpretations. They absolutely should make their own interpretations, but I think both sides have to be presented. Now, you've written a book called American Honor, and uh, it's about the creation of the nation's ideals during the revolutionary era. Tell us a little bit about the book. What is the uh, gist of it? What is the thesis that you advance there? Uh, The gist of it is it's an ethical history of the American Revolution, and it makes the claim that the revolution itself was shaped by an ethical or moral movement prior to the war, prior to independence, um, looking at the sort of failings of British rule. And it's looking at honor and virtue as causing the American Revolution. And then that obviously leads to the question of what on earth are honor and virtue. And they've been defined in lots of different ways as reputation, a moral philosophy, various uh, degrees, virtues usually linked to religion. Uh, Honor is usually linked to reputation. But what I found in my research is that these terms in the 18th century to sort of Americans would have been understood as how we think of the term ethics today. So it's very much looking at these ideological, ethical causes of the American Revolution and how they sought to gain their, well, first their rights and then their independence, then fighting a war based on a set of ideals in which their thoughts influence their actions. And they're concerned with winning well, not just simply, um, you know, winning the war by any means necessary. And it's really looking at how these ideas uh, have shaped the United States and were really institutionalized in key documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and how um, American patriots and then 
early United States government officials, and not just the government, but colleges, uh, regular people of all walks of life, really embrace this sort of ethical founding based on, on honor and virtue, even though they're not terms we really use anymore today. And is there a way to uh, generalize w- w- what the sources were primarily that they drew on to understand something like, say, virtues? Was it uh, both Christian and classical culture? Sure. Uh, there is absolutely a, a classical basis. There's a, a Christian basis. But if you look at the Declaration of Independence, they use the term sacred honor. And what they're really trying to do is create a sort of secular morality that would have been accessible to, to anyone regardless of their religious domination, um, denomination. Excuse me. Um, obviously, most Americans at that time were, were, were Christian. Um, uh, at the very least, you were a deist, um, very few atheists. But the idea was honor was something everyone of all faiths could accept. That was intelligible uh, core to principles. most people, yeah. Exactly. It was the idea of a greater good of serving the nation over the self. And that's what united um, uh, people across these religious divides, especially when, if you're thinking about the uh, split from England, it's one that's both political, and if you're an Anglican, it's also a religious split. Um, So I think it's very much uh, about making the idea uh, as adaptive as possible to as many people as possible. Now, how do you plan on celebrating Independence Day this year? Uh, ah, well, I have a one-and-a-half-year-old daughter, uh, so my wife and I are probably going to uh, take her to a barbecue, and she's probably going to want to go to sleep before the fireworks start, and last year she slept through the fireworks, so it's probably going to be us sitting on the couch trying to see fireworks from the distance while she sleeps. <laughs> well, great, like millions of other Americans. Craig, it's been delightful to talk to you uh, today. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Enjoy your Fourth of July holiday. God bless America. Oh, thanks for having me. And uh, in the spirit of the Fourth of July, uh, watch over us all. Thank you for listening today. If you like this episode, please leave our podcast a rating and review. It doesn't take long at all. And when those ratings go up, our podcast gets more exposure and more listeners. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on Stitcher, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. Or you can swing over to our page at acton.org slash line and subscribe from there. If you're on the road this week for the holiday like I will be, I hope you have safe travels and a happy 4th of July. 